this is a personal curse. As much as it seems to not be, it's affecting all that Adam does. Adam, you've done this. Look what you've done. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Lord, all we can ask is speak by your spirit. Your people are listening. Bring glory to the Son as we study this text. We ask for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. These are the words that the Coalette, the teacher of the book of Ecclesiastes, almost breaks forth into right at the beginning of what we call Ecclesiastes, this sobering, if not realistic, appraisal of life. As he looks at the frustrating and broken state of creation, it drives him to just utter those words, vanity, vanity. This is what has caused the successful stockbroker or the sports superstar or the famous influencer to end their lives, not when the markets crash or the game was lost or the followers stopped following, but when the world yields up its greatest gains and they have the whole world in their hands and yet in the midst of that, they are insufferably hollow. Vanity of vanities. We, we feel this as another day passes, as a Monday comes and goes. As we change the calendar from December to January, we feel this, don't, don't we, every day, the harmonious groan of futility. I mean, how else can we explain the corrupt condition of the world that we live in if it's not because of the curse and the fall? Is all of this just a byproduct of chance, of involuntary and unrelated processes that take us from trilobites to TikTokers? Is this just random chance? Atheists don't have a sufficient answer for the futility that we have, but neither do the strict deists. I wonder how can a deist keep a smile on their face when they pray, believing that God is completely detached, uninvolved from the sorrow, suffering, and evil of this world. When we come to the scriptures, we ask the real questions, like why is there suffering? Why are there famines, pestilence, pandemics, hurricanes, cancer? chronic pain, disease, or death? Where did these unwelcome intruders come from? And as we open the scriptures, only a biblical worldview of a world broken by the fall sufficiently speaks to this universal plight. This world is not the way that God originally intended for it to be. Something more, and you can rightly say more sinister, is happening. We read about it last week in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent came more crafty than any other beast that God had made and deceived the woman and tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the Septuagint, the Old Testament translated into Greek, uses the words that the Kohelet in Ecclesiastes 
uses, vanity, meaningless, he uses those, that same word, empty, folly, that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. So look on the screen just as we set this up this morning. Paul says this in that glorious section in Romans that we studied last year. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, and you could add, we feel, we experience, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The creation was subjected to futility. This was not accidental. No, this was a sovereign judicial decree in response to sin. This futility that we experience, this emptiness, this folly is not permanent, nor is it intrinsic to creation. It was subjected to it for a time. And eventually the hope that we all have, it's not a wishful thinking, it's a surety, is that we will see redemption and liberation, even in creation. And yet in the meantime, a perpetual groaning in a corporate chorus. Band from the 90s, the Verve said, it's a bitter symphony, this life. Bittersweet symphony. The second law of thermodynamics, entropy, where order tends to disorder, affects everything from the solar system to our natural bodies that age to our encroaching front lawns. And now what brings us the greatest joys and happiness in life is also going to bring us one day the greatest pain and loss. What was given to us for our flourishing now brings sweat and frustration. What was intended by God to work in harmony one with another is now at war. What is alive today will eventually fade away, perish, and decay back into the dust of the earth. In our text this morning, we find out where this all came from, and we study this morning the curse of the fall. Last week, we began Genesis 3, and we saw how the serpent casted doubt on God's word, but not only doubt, he also distorted and outright denied it. And we learned that the woman gave of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to her husband, and he ate of it. And when that happened, it says their eyes were both open. And suddenly they observed, we're male and female. And we, they sought to cover their, wicked, their nakedness, and as we learned, their ineffectual coverings of fig leaves. But as we're going to see today, as much as we may seek to cover our shame, we are still exposed before a just and holy God. And so we need not to hide from God or cover our sin, but we need to receive his provision and receive his salvation. So today, in the midst of the curse, we also see the first gospel, what's known as the Proto-Evangelion. And in the midst of this awful turn of events, we see God's provision through a Messiah. God is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign even over the curse. So today we're going to break this text into three sections. If you're taking note, you're going to see today the confrontation of the guilty in verses 8 through 13. 
We're going to spend a lot of time there and on the second section, the curse of man, woman, and serpent, verses 14 through 19. And we'll just spend a minute because uh, we'll get into this later in Genesis, uh, the casting out of Eden in verses 20 through 28. And that last point is quite tragic. Vance Havner says this. He says, Adam and Eve ate us out of house and home. And how true that is indeed. We have, in a sense, been living east of Eden ever since Genesis chapter 3. So, with heavy hearts mingled with future hope, let us peer back to our first parents and see what put our family into this sad state of affairs. The confrontation of the guilty, verse 8. Look at it with me. It says, They heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I want to re reiterate again, the writer of Moses, or the writer of Genesis is Moses, and he uses the name here, uh, Lord God. Now, last week, the serpent had omitted that name Yahweh, the covenant keeper who, as I prayed for a call to worship this morning, the covenant keeper, Exodus 34, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving and good and just. Uh, that God is Yahweh. But the serpent and even Eve had omitted that part of his name. They just called him uh, Elohim. But uh, from here on out, uh, you're going to, uh, throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, the name Lord God is used. Notice with me that the Lord God is walking, it says, in the garden, and they hear the sound of God walking. If God is spirit, how is this possible? How can God be walking? Well, we know from John chapter 1, verse 18, and 1 Timothy 6, 16, no one has ever seen God uh, or can see God in the person of the Father. And so, not to go into this doctrinally, but it's very likely that this could be a God in the person of Jesus pre-incarnate or what's known as a theophany, a visible manifestation of God's presence. I don't want to get too much onto that topic, but notice what's happening. He's uh, perceptibly walking in the garden. They hear this sound, but notice when it is. It's in the cool of the day. That, that phrase literally is the breath or the wind of the day. So a lot of people believe or surmise that the cool of the day, the, the wind of the day, the refreshment of the day, is just before sunset when the, the sun is setting and, and the calm breeze sets in. Our photographer friends call it golden hour, sort of that time right before the sun sets where it's beautiful and a little bit uh, cool. And I find it fascinating, as Spurgeon did, that our sovereign, all-knowing, and just God did not come in the morning <clears throat> or as soon as Adam bites into the fruit, uh, God doesn't show up. Uh, Yahweh Elohim, as Spurgeon said, didn't walk up right in the heat of the day in, in fomenting fury. God didn't wait until the terrors of night to come in the darkness and terrify uh, an already frightened and unnerved mankind. He came at just the right time. He came in the cool of the day, slow to anger, abounding in love. Um, but some people will translate this uh, he came in the, the wind of the day, meaning that God came in the whirlwind. Certainly we see that in the book of Job, uh, that God uh, existed, his presence seemed to exist even with Israel with the, the pillar of cloud. And so there could be something to that, uh, the wind. But what did the man and the woman do? Verse 8 says they 
they hid. They hid themselves among the trees. They know their nakedness. They know their guilt. They know now the coverings they've provided for themselves of fig leaves uh, that they constructed are quite inadequate, and so now they cower behind the trees. Notice verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now we know from Scripture that God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. So this is not as much God inquiring because he can't seem to find Adam as much as it's something else quite different. We know from Hebrews 4.13, the writer of Hebrews says, no creature, that includes you and I, we are not creator, we're creation, creature. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. So where are you, Adam? It is not a question of ignorance, but neither is it a question of interrogation. Please don't misread that God is an angry drill sergeant demanding his cadets get into formation. No, this is a question of grace. This is a question of patience. God's inquiry is an inquiry of tenderness. God is asking Adam, where are you? So that Adam can see his lostness. Where are you? So that you can see how your sin has separated you from God. Where are you, Adam? God indeed seeks after sinners. God's question, where are you, begs Adam to confess and renounce his sin and that man must answer to God for his lawless rebellion to God's commands. Where are you, Adam? Spurgeon said in our courts of law, we do not require men to answer questions which would incriminate them, but God does. And at the last great day, the ungodly will be condemned on their own confession of guilt. Where are you, Adam? This is a question of grace. Well, how does Adam respond? Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So note with me this great paradoxical quandary for all of us who are in Adam. At the same time, we feel this, this moment. At the same time, we're created in the image of God. And so simultaneously, there's an awe and appreciation for the grandeur and the greatness of God and and an appreciation, not every unbeliever has this, but a general appreciation for common grace. We look at sunsets and it's not just believers who appreciate them and snap a photo. It's, It's all people can appreciate common grace, though they don't give glory to God for it or thank him. So there's in one sense that appreciation and that awe and maybe a a mingled reverence. And yet at the same time, because we're sinful, we're also exposed and guilty and fearful before him. We realize I'm standing before a holy God. There's dread. And so, again, Adam is defining for himself what is good and evil. He and his wife were lured into the sinful trap of seeking to be like God or more specifically to be their own gods. And I like what Todd Miles says. He says, disobedience always involves some sort of de facto atheism. We saw that last week, didn't we? Just, I want to be, not just like God, but I want to be God. And so Adam does this again. I thought that I should hide from you. I was afraid of you, and so I surmised, and he makes his own judgment. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Note with me, church, two more questions. And 
Does God keep inquiring because he's an investigating detective and he wants to unearth the clues of the crime by interrogating the witness? No. Again, these questions, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? Again, these questions reveal his kindness. This isn't about Adam's nakedness. This isn't a clothing problem. This is a sin problem. God goes directly to the source of what has separated man from his maker. He doesn't get involved in the side conversations that all of us want to get involved with. He goes straight to the source, straight to the root of it. Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And Adam's response should have been, his, his response should have been in verse 12. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Yes, Yahweh Elohim, I disobeyed you, and I fall upon your mercy. I ask, I plead for your forgiveness. Save me, O God, and I will be saved. Heal me, and I will be healed. You're the God I praise. See, God's giving him another opportunity to confess his sin specifically and to turn from it in repentance. But how does he answer? Verse 12. The woman that you gave to be with me, the woman, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. That woman, it's all her fault. I mean, I ate it, yes, but, but she's the one who handed me the fruit. So he deflects, he points the blame to her. Classic husband thing to do. Classic married thing to do. Classic sibling thing to do. Sibling gets caught, and it's, it's blame it on the other sibling. How many politicians deflect with that tried and true axiom, mistakes were made, Mistakes were made rather than I have failed you as a politician. How many spouses say the greatest source of strain in our relationship, it's not me, it's, it's the person you put me with. But see, there's more happening here. Don't miss this. I may, you may have missed this. The, Adam is saying the woman whom you gave to be with me. So do you see who Adam's really blaming? Yes, he's deflecting, but he's truly blaming, as John Calvin says, God. He's saying, Lord, it's your fault. You took one of my ribs to create this feckless helper who brought me down. I mean, what heights, or should we say depths, of the heinous hubris of man to attribute your own blame onto uh, someone else or worse, to blame God for your corruption. And yet, we know we've all done that. So God now turns to Adam's wife. He's going to deal with Adam, but now he turns to Adam's wife. And notice now, again, a question. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? He's giving the woman a gracious occasion to confess and repent. What is this you've done? Well, the woman's response should have been, I sinned, have mercy on me, O God. But notice what she says. The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. She points to the serpent. And so it is now between Adam and his wife Eve, it is inherent not only in our first parents, but in each one of us in our sinful nature to deflect, to blame others, to blame God. Uh, one person said this, this sin of the first pair was heinous and aggravated. It was not simply eating an apple, which we know it wasn't necessarily an apple, it could have been, but a love of self, dishonor to God, ingratitude to a benefactor, disobedience to the best of masters, and a preference of the creature to the creator. She points to the serpent, 
And the serpent doesn't point to anyone else. He doesn't have fingers, so he can't point. But the serpent now uh, is going to receive the curse. So let's look at the second section, the curse of man, woman, and serpent. I want to spend some time here. Uh, It says that Yahweh Elohim said to the serpent, because you've done this. Now notice with me, there's no question here. There's no grace extended to the serpent. God doesn't say, what have you done? Because he knows what he's done. Again, he's not offering redemption to the serpent, but only to Adam and Eve, only to mankind. And so because you've done this, he cuts to the chase. We have the curse. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, some would believe and teach that the serpent previously was a reptile with legs, and now because of the curse, all snakes must slither on their bellies. Uh, I don't think that is as much what's happening here as much as this is a picture of defeat and humiliation. Uh, We just saw this in Romans 8. All creatures are cursed, but the serpent in particular here is under uh, a deeper state of curse. Cursed are you above all livestock. All livestock are cursed now, but you're cursed above them. And so I believe this is God pronouncing judgment, particularly upon the agent behind the serpent, We didn't get to this last week, but I want to make sure we highlight this. The active agent behind the serpent was, we would say, the devil. Uh, The devil, though, is not God's equal. We understand from Scripture that there was a created angel known as Lucifer, an anointed cherub, and presumably a celestial creature whose function was to vindicate the holiness of God. That was the, the function of the cherub. to to stand by and vindicate God's holiness, created with brilliance, created with beauty, but not to receive that praise, to pass that praise on to the one who is set apart from all creation. Uh, The other angelic beings were also called to be messengers. However, this particular angel was filled with pride, and the scripture tells us he sought to be like the Most High. No wonder his temptation to Adam and Eve was the same thing to be like God. And uh, when he sought to receive the glory rather than to give Yahweh the glory, what ends up happening is he becomes known as the adversary uh, or Satan. Satan is a term that means the adversary, the deceiver, the accuser, the one who Peter says prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And Jesus said in Luke 10, uh, 18, Luke 10, 18, he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And other passages in Scripture tell us that one-third of the angels fell with the devil and followed his crafty deceptions. Now, when did that happen? Ostensibly, this happened between creation and the fall of man. So you could say between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. But notice verse 15. After this fallen angel prompts the serpent, comes to Eve, tempts her to believe his promises over God's promises, we come to verse 15, a very cryptic, seemingly cryptic verse, but one that's foundational for us understanding the rest of the scriptures and understanding the gospel. Look at verse 15. It says, this is to the serpent, not to the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Now, at first glance, don't misunderstand this. This is not uh, God pronouncing a dislike between women and snakes. That's not what's happening here. A universal disdain or hatred for snakes. That's not what's happening. Um, neither is this aimed at the woman. One person said the curse is not aimed at the woman, but at the serpent. And its language speaks of combat. I will put enmity, hostility, combat between, notice, between the offspring or the seed of the serpent and the seed singular of the woman. Notice particularly the second half of this verse. He shall bruise your head. So the offspring of the serpent, we would argue, is the devil himself. And the he here is the singular seed of the woman. Galatians 3.16 helps us understand that when the scripture says the seed of Abraham, that's not to speaking to like all of his progeny, but to one man in particular, the singular seed, capital S. And it says, you shall bruise his heel. You, Satan, will strike this descendant of Eve, this seed, and you'll strike him in a way that causes excruciating pain and torment, but you're only going to strike his heel. He's going to bruise your head. That doesn't take a rocket scientist or a doctor. Just ask any mom. If your child hurts their heel versus hurts their head, there's just, you can't even compare these two in severity. So you will, Satan, you will strike the seed, but in so doing, you will be soundly crushed and defeated. Now, is there a time when the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, a man, a Messiah, a Savior would come, and at the same time, he would be struck, and yet in his death blow, he would put a final end to the devil? Well, we know, of course, that is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what... Uh, many scholars call the proto-evangelion, meaning the first gospel, the gospel in the beginning. A future seed is coming who will destroy the works of the devil even as he suffers. Who is this seed of the woman? And the rest of the book of Genesis seeks to answer that question. If you want to understand what's happening in the book of Genesis, how do we break it down? Is it just about four big events and four big people? Well, in a sense, yes. But it all hinges in Genesis 3.15 onward to give us a glimpse of where this seed is going to come from. We have all the nations there in Genesis 11, but God's going to select one of those nations. And through Abraham, through the root of Jesse, there would be a king who would come to sit on David's throne forever, and he would be the one who would crush the serpent, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the serpent in this curse, his future final judgment is sure. As Jesus went to the cross, John 16, 11, he said, the ruler of this world is now judged. 1 Timothy 3, 16 says, the devil is condemned. Matthew 25, 41 says, there is an eternal lake of fire and sulfur prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, they will be tormented day and night forever." and ever. The hymn says it this way, soon the battle will be over. Satan's forces will be turned. Soon the church will hear the trumpet. Glory and triumph shall be earned. And so we serve a God who has triumphed over the devil. We know the devil is still active, and yet he's a defeated, and one day a final defeated foe. 
Paul told the Romans in the meantime, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, the gospel is not merely that Jesus died in our place and suffered the wrath that we deserved. That's not incorrect, but that's incomplete. We know that the rest of the gospel is that Jesus is king, that he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And so on the cross, Christ defeated the devil, crushed his head, made a public spectacle of him, and triumphed over him. Not only has Jesus died brutally in our place, and he's rose again triumphantly, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father royally, but we also believe he's coming again in judgment authoritatively. And so we have to understand the entirety of the gospel, not just justification, propitiation for my sin, making me right with God. That's, that's, uh, that's enough for me to know, but there's more. There's glorious more uh, that Christ is also uh, the victor. So in his grace, God announces the Messiah. Did you catch this? Before he pronounces the curse to man. See, this chapter, it's full of cursing. It's full of of despair, but it's also full of God's kindness, his grace, his provision, even in his severity. So note now the curse of the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the two areas which were to be a source of blessing to the woman, not only her husband, but also her children, are now reminders of the fall. We hear babies often cooing in our service, and we have a few more moms still pregnant, ready to give birth any day now. And every baby born reminds us, it reminds women in particular, of the sin of our first mother. Uh, these children who are, are born are born in pain. And then we realize we're bringing another sinner in the world. I think, um, who was it? Who is it that said this? I think it was, um, oh gosh, uh, Vodi, Vodi said, vipers in diapers, these little sinners, right? <laughs> but see, every birth, though it's, you're bearing children in pain, every birth also brings with it, doesn't it, the anticipation of hope, at least for a time. This could be the promised seed. Maybe this is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. So not only pain and childbearing, but the marriage relationship also suffers. Notice her desire shall be contrary to her husband. Some translations, and I think Dean read it this way, shall be for your husband. But the idea here is that it, it will be either for the rule of the husband, to be the husband, your desire will be for the leadership of the home, or it will be contrary to the husband. Your desire will run against his rule. And yet, he will rule over you. He will maintain his authority over his household. Now, that authority was granted to Adam earlier in the garden by nature of being created first, which is picked up on a lot by Paul in the New Testament. And so I just want to just dismiss my egalitarian friends who erroneously say male headship occurs beginnings here in the curse. No, it's not a product of the curse. What's a product is the wife's contrary desires running against her husband. And so now as a sinner, his authority has the propensity to be abused and to be misshapen. So rather than ruling his household in love and being submitted to the authority of God, sadly now 
his, abu- his authority is going to be abused. And some churches take the equality of male and female too far, and they try to blur all gender distinctives and say, well, see, now in Christ, there is no such thing as male headship. Uh, no more male headship in the home or in the church. Uh, and they would say, let's stop singing hymns. Let's start singing more hers. Not as many hymns. But see, that's a true thing. Go look it up. But see, in Christ, we still maintain our male and our female roles, and male headship is not a product of the curse. But a sinful and oppressing rule certainly is. But here the curse of the woman is that she will now desire to run against that authority uh, to fight it. Well, finally, God speaks to Adam, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you see how I emphasized this is a personal curse? As much as it seems to not be, it's affecting all that Adam does. Adam, you've done this. Look what you've done. The ground that I've given you to work and keep is now going to work against you instead of with you. Every farmer can attest to sweating and competing with the thorns and the thistles and the weeds that grow almost stronger than the crop. He says, in pain you will eat. You you previously could eat of all the trees, but you ate of the forbidden fruit, so now pain will accompany your efforts to supply yourself food. In pain you will eat. Man, you'll now return from the dust that you were formed from. This is a picture of the certainty of death. The serpent had falsely promised that won't happen. You will not surely die. And here God says, you will surely die. I told you you would. You will return to the ground. You are from dust and you will return to dust. Now, let's look at our third section, the casting out of Eden. I still see grace here. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So just... Briefly for a moment, we mentioned this previously, but Adam was given good work to do before the fall. And so work is not a product of the fall, but work is now cursed because of the fall. And so Adam's going to continue working and keeping, but it's not going to be this lush paradise anymore. He's now banned from the garden. He's going to continue to work and keep the land, but now it's going to be by the sweat of his brow. And it says in verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is another grace. We can surmise that it's a a little bit of a logical jump, but we can surmise that if Adam went in this state, fallen, separated from God, sinful nature now, If he were to eat of the tree of life, perhaps 
he would be alive perpetually in this broken, sinful state. And so out of the grace of God, God drives him out east of Eden. And notice that he places cherubim to protect the man from eating of the tree of life. I I find it fascinating. God did not protect the man from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He he didn't protect the man with a flaming sword from eating of the. He gave him that option. Uh, Yet he commanded him not to. God was sovereign over his choice. And yet, I I find it again, uh, the irony's not lost on me that it's cherubim, the same type of angel that Lucifer was, that are called to protect man from eating of the tree of life. So God drives him out east of Eden. uh, And God's purpose, even in the fall, is to provide redemption. You see, as Adam names his wife for the second time, remember he had already named her woman, which speaks to her origin. Now he names her the mother of all living, which speaks to her future. Uh, I believe that verse 20 is a step of faith for Adam. They don't have any children yet, and we'll read that next week. No boy is yet born who could be the seed to crush the serpent. And Adam could have named his wife deceived because certainly uh, that was what she was in the garden. He could have said, this is my wife. I'd like to introduce you. Her name is Deceived. She ruined everything. But what does he do here? He trusts God's provision. God says, I'm going to provide from you, Eve, from the woman, a seed who will put an end to this. And so what does he name his wife? He names her the mother of all living. I find this to be a step of faith. He trusts God's provision. And notice verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You see, Adam learned the hard way that it's better indeed to be with God than to try to be God. Now, as we move from the creation to the new creation, and we'll come back to that garments of skin, um, I just want to give us one application point with, that, have, that have three subpoints. So one application point for us with three subpoints. So I'd love for you all to jot this down or take a photo of the screen uh, for us this week to contemplate this, to, to let this really seep in our hearts and our minds as we consider our lives. So in our lives, in the believer's life, sin must be rightly confessed, fervently resisted, and mercilessly annihilated with the Spirit's help. So first, rightly confessed. Rightly can, we'll just leave that up for a minute. Rightly confess. That means naming it as sin. You can label arsenic sugar, and you can sell a lot of bags of arsenic as sugar. But as I read this week about the Bradford Sweets poisoning of 1858, you'll have a lot of dead children as a result. You can mislabel it and not call sin sin. You can mislabel it in many ways. I was born this way, it's just an addiction. It's just my personality. But when you have sinned against God or others, you must stop making excuses and be quick to confess it. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say, this is for you and for me, there's not someone else here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, name them, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he comes back to it. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
So we must confess our sin, name it. Not only confess, though, sin, secondly, must be fervently resisted. It was Eve giving in to temptation in the garden at the serpent's cunning that led her to sin against God. It was Adam holding out his hand to receive the fruit from his wife that led to the curse. Such a comforting verse in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's so comforting. What you're going through is not unique to you. Every, throughout the generations, everyone, it may not be exactly that particular type of sin, but that temptation is not uncommon. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Peter 5.9 says, resist the devil firm in faith. So not only do we confess our sin, we resist the temptation uh, through the Spirit's help, but thirdly, we also must mercilessly put it to death. We annihilate it. We slay it. Or to use the words the Puritans used, we mortify it. We kill it. We put it to death. Uh, Romans 8.13, just before that section on futility, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, the Holy Spirit makes us alive and makes us new, regeneration, renewal. But the Holy Spirit also supplies the believer the strength to kill the things in our lives that, if left unchecked, will kill us. And that includes, that Spirit help includes dressing us in the armor of God. Paul speaks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. That's really the gospel, being clothed in the gospel. And the Spirit also helps us to meditate on the promises of God. This is how we put sin to death. John Piper says, Killing sin means daily calling to mind and trusting blood-bought specific promises of God. We remember the promises of God. We meditate on them. And like Jesus in the wilderness, we quote them when tempted. We quote the scripture. The verse that changed Augustine's life, and I've taught this before, is Romans 13, 14, where Augustine heard a voice saying, uh, open and read, open and read. And so he opens his Bible or scroll and finds Romans 13, 14, which says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So do you see the negative there? The negative is stop supplying your flesh with your eyes, with your time, with your thoughts, with your money, with your energy, with your livelihood. Give your flesh no budget. Starve it. Cut off the supply. Bankrupt it. But there's also the positive, isn't there? Dress yourself. Clothe yourself. Put on Christ and be clothed in his righteousness. You see, as Adam stands there dressed in his fig leaves, verse 21 gives us an incredible glimpse into the gracious provision of our merciful and just God. It says, God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and God clothed them. Where do you think those skins came from? Well, they had to come from an animal, an animal that had to be put to death. An animal had to be slain. Blood had to be shed that mankind could be rightly clothed and have his shame properly removed. Man sought to cover his nakedness with fig leaves, a ridiculous and rudimentary attempt that fell short. And all of our attempts in our own strength fall short. It doesn't say that Adam got smarter and found a lamb to slay. 
No, it says God provided the skins. The first sinners were given a covering for their shame that was divinely provided for. And he's done the same thing for all sinners in Christ. You see, as we close this morning, we learn in this text that Adam and mankind now suffers from guilt, from condemnation, and from separation because of our sinful nature. But now in Christ, the last true and greater Adam, the seed of woman, we now have no threat of guilt, no condemnation, and no separation. That section in Romans 8 ends with three questions. And here's the three questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's the first question. Who is going to bring guilt against you? Well, the answer is because of Christ, there is no guilt. The second question, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So that second question, you're condemned in Adam, but who is to condemn? It's Christ. And because of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. The third question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? See, in Adam, we're separated from God. We're cast out of his presence. But because of Christ, because Christ laid down his life, he's now reconciled us with the Father. There is no more separation. Adam may have failed, but Paul would go on to remind us, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, fallen angels, nor rulers, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, even your own sin, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes and amen. All glory be to Christ our King. Next week we'll see the, the, the echo of this uh, fall. We'll see the echoes of this implication in uh, the next generation. But for now, let's stand together and pray. Lord, should nothing of our efforts stand, none of our legacies survive, Scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers, they labor in strife. They labor in vain. Their work is futile, and yet you've provided through your Son not only a means of salvation, but the only way to the Father. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And we thank you this morning that you have made a way, a provision to cleanse us from our sin, to cover our shame. Lord, we've been separated from a holy God and we who were cut off and separated, you've now brought near through the blood of Christ. Lord, if there are some today who do not yet confess the name of Jesus, would you draw them by your, your spirit? Would you draw them, Father, to your son? Lord, if there are some of us today who have not confessed sin, by your spirit, would you prompt us? Would you lead us? Would you convict us to name it, to confess it, to put it to death? to find the victory that you provide us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for all of us that we would live and embody the gospel, that we're not worthy, but there is one who is worthy, the lamb who is slain. 
We give all glory to you, and we thank you for clothing us in your righteousness, Lord. We may not feel it, but it's not about our feelings. It is true. We are now made righteous before you, declared holy. God, we pray that you would work in our lives and encourage our hearts, even as we close and are reminded that all glory belongs to you. Help us this week to put our sin to death, to name it, Lord, and to submit it in confession and repentance to a just and holy and merciful God. And we thank you and fall upon your mercy this morning. It's in Christ's name, your son, we pray. Amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.